one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer. Welcome in, everybody, episode Dale Jr. The Sports Podcast, it is Monday, February 12th, 2024, people. I hope everybody's doing well. Hope everybody had a great Super Bowl Sunday. By the way, hope you're surviving your Monday after the Super Bowl at work. Here's the good news. Torres has a loaded show for you today. We got a lot of ground to cover. We're obviously going to open. Super Bowl, you may have heard, the Kansas City Chiefs are once again your champions, and you know I got a lot of thoughts on the game itself. Kyle Shanahan, did he make the right decision taking the football in overtime? But then maybe more importantly, what this win means for the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, and of course, what this loss means for San Francisco. From there, we'll take a quick break. We will do a little college hoops, okay? So Saturday, we did the bonus show. Kentucky loses to Gonzaga. That was really the only game of consequence on Saturday. So I don't think we have to do a big college hoop segment, but instead what we're going to do is something different. Saturday, we did the quick reaction to Kentucky-Gonzaga with the thought process being by Monday, everyone's going to have moved on from the game. But at the same time, what I did want to do today was this. I want to talk about what Kentucky's future is because it just, it can't go on like this with the way it's going with John Calipari. Three straight losses at Rupp Arena, historically bad season, on the verge again. And my question becomes, who are the realistic candidates for Kentucky if they somehow can get out of this John Calipari contract? Who's realistic? Who isn't? Who's unaffordable? Who would, whatever. The point being, we'll talk Kentucky and who could potentially be the next head coach. Finally, we will wrap with a little bit of a busy college football weekend. Chip Kelly leaves UCLA for Ohio State. What does it mean for Ohio State? Also, as I'm recording, UCLA does not have a football coach. What are they going to do from there? Uh, we will also talk about Ryan Grubb, the Alabama offensive coordinator, leaving there. What does that mean? So we got ourselves a jam-packed show. Busy show. Fun show. And with that said, no more time to waste. So let's get to the topic of the day. The topic of the day, listen, we had ourselves a Super Bowl on Sunday, okay? And this isn't the type of show. We're not breaking down the X's and O's and the scheme and the second quarter this happened and the fourth quarter this happened. And what about this? And what about that? But it was a fun game. We all watched it. I don't know that it was like an iconic game. You know what it actually reminded me a lot of? Kind of reminded me of this year's Rose Bowl, right? Remember the Rose Bowl? It was a weird game. Fumbles, turnovers, interceptions, this, that. Two, two and a half, three quarters. It's kind of like, what what is even going on? Then Michigan makes a run, forces overtime, and we get a great finish. And that's what I think this Super Bowl was. I wouldn't call it a great all-time game. But it had a great all-time finish as San Francisco rallies, ties the game up, uh, ends up forcing overtime. And then, of course, in overtime, they take the football. They kick a field goal. Patrick Mahomes gets the ball back. Patrick Mahomes throws a pass to McCole Hardman in overtime. Three seconds left. And the Kansas City Chiefs are, once again, your Super Bowl champs. So there's a lot to break down um, and a lot of kind of historical stuff. I don't, by the way, I don't do like lists. Well, Patrick Mahomes is number two and like somebody else wants to do their little pyramid of quarterbacks, like go crazy. I do have a couple thoughts and I do want to start kind of with the question that I think a lot of people are asking. And I'm curious for others perspective. You're watching on YouTube, comment below. If you're listening on podcast, feel free to tweet me, Aaron underscore Torres. Hit me up on, on email, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. But what did you think of Kyle Shanahan making the decision 
to take the football in overtime. Because that's ultimately what this came down to, right? It's tied after four quarters, extra period, and historically, essentially, nobody really has ever, once they've changed the rules where both teams get the football, nobody has really ever made the decision in a big moment to take the football first. And it felt weird. I'll be honest. I was driving in to do Fox Sports National Radio on for, on Sunday night, and I was listening to overtime on the in the car. I got to the studio before the end of the game. But when San Francisco made the decision to take the football, Kurt Warner, who was on the call on radio, just crushed the decision. He was like, this is terrible. Why would you do this? Blah, 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 this and that. And I don't know that I necessarily hated the decision because obviously, look, whatever you do, as long as you put points on the board, to some degree, you're putting pressure on the other team. The problem, of course, is that the other team has Patrick freaking Mahomes as its quarterback. And this isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, we're going to get into the analytics and the this and the that of it. But at the end of the day, context matters. And the context is no matter what you do, you're giving the ball back to Patrick freaking Mahomes. And it's probably not going to end well if you don't score a touchdown. And even if you score a touchdown, he's probably going to tie it and force another overtime. And so it's one that I don't know that I have a strong opinion about. Now, it was interesting listening after the game. Kyle Shanahan did reference, hey, look. It, we don't have a ton of data on on this new overtime rule, but the analytics say that you actually do want to take the ball first, and the argument is that you want the ball third. Now, the question becomes, why do you want the ball third? Well, remember, each team gets the ball in overtime, and if it's still tied after the first possession, then it becomes sudden death. So if you get the ball third, you have a chance to end the game right there. If you score, if you hold them to whatever, if you score a field goal and you hold them to a field goal, if you score a touchdown and they score a touchdown, you get the ball third and you have a chance to win it in walk-off fashion. Again, that makes sense and the analytics probably back it up. There's essentially three scenarios, there's essentially five scenarios and three of them are in your favor. You kick a field goal, they kick a field goal. You score a touchdown, they score a touchdown. You don't score at all, they don't score at all. And I guess, so there's four scenarios that work in your favor. You know, whatever. There's three scenarios where the game goes tied into a third possession and in the third possession you score. So the point is, I get that there probably is an analytics element to this. But again, analytics don't take into account that this isn't week six against the Broncos. This isn't week eight against Zach Wilson and the Jets. This is the Super Bowl and you're giving the ball back to Patrick Mahomes and the game is largely out of your control. And so listen, this is going to be a Torres rant against analytics because I do believe two weeks ago, NFC championship game, Dan Campbell made flat out the wrong decision to take to 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 go for go for uh, to go for it on fourth down late in the game. And we all remember that. But my argument at the time was essentially the upside is you get a first down and you still got a score. The downside is you give the ball back and you're trailing and they can ice the game. And the context of the game is this isn't the first quarter against the Bills in week three. This is in the, in the NFC championship game on the road. And if you don't, you know, it, the other team's moving the ball on you the entire second half. And so I didn't love it from Dan Campbell's perspective. And I do think that this isn't quite as bad. But again, the context does matter. The context is if you don't get seven, you're giving the ball back to Mahomes. First of all, it doesn't matter who the quarterback is. If you own, if you don't get any points, which is always in play, then all they got to do is kick a field goal to win. But even if you kick a field goal, the other team has Patrick Mahomes. 
he probably ain't getting get you know being held out of the end zone. And so I do think the context matters. I probably would have given it to them first. That way, if Mahomes scores a TD, you know you at least got to score a TD. You go on and on. That's probably what I would have done. Ultimately, I didn't hate the decision. Ultimately, it didn't matter. Ultimately, Kansas City is your Super Bowl champs. And with it, you know, I think it's time to have some conversations about where San Francisco is, where KC is, and the fact that we are officially in a dynasty, right? So first off, from the San Francisco perspective, like, I just feel bad. I'm not a 49ers fan. I don't live in the Bay Area. I just, I, I just, but I do, I do feel bad because on the one hand, first of all, this is the second time in four years that you largely outplayed Kansas City in a Super Bowl. That first time they played in 2020, right before COVID shut down the world, remember, they were a Jimmy G deep ball from beating the Kansas City Chiefs. And then you keep playing. Obviously, by the way, San Francisco is so close to being multiple Super Bowl, even more Super Bowls, even more championships. Remember, they had a chance to ice it in SoFi against the Rams, dropped interception. Last year, Brock Purdy's elbow shattered in 20 pieces against Philly. This year, you're up. You're dominating the game. You're controlling things. Patrick Mahomes is not playing well. And you have a chance to take the lead, build the lead, this and that, and you don't. So one, I feel bad. And two, I especially feel bad because it does, doesn't it kind of feel like, and, and again, we don't talk a ton of NFL on this show, but doesn't it kind of feel like this is the last real run for this team? And maybe I'm over analyzing it, whatever. But one, there isn't a history, a, a good history of teams losing a Super Bowl, getting back and winning it the next year. The term Super Bowl hangover is there for a reason. But two, this San Francisco team starting to get a little old, aren't they? Remember, a lot of this core is back from the first Super Bowl run four years ago. Well, now, George Kittle's 30 on going on 31. Um, Christian McCaffrey is going to be 28 years old this year, which in, in running back terms is really old. Obviously, Dre Greenlaw, for the Arkansas fans listening, you feel awful for him. He's a former Arkansas Razorback. I, I saw a bunch of my Arkansas media buddies tweeting that was the most Arkansas injury ever. But he's obviously hurt. He's not going to be back next year. Fred, you know, they're getting older as a team. And so you look at them, you look at the fact that, listen, Brock Purdy kind of proved that he is who he thought he was. Now, I never thought he was the worst quarterback in the world, but I never thought he was the best quarterback in the world. I never thought he was the MVP of the league. And so I only bring it up because if you have Brock Purdy, you basically need a lot of other stuff to go right around him. And I don't know that it's going to go right for the very foreseeable future. Your offense is almost entirely built around a running back who historically has gotten hurt and stayed healthy this year. Your second or third best offensive weapon is 31 years old. Uh, the defense, older guys falling apart. Trent Williams, your, your Hall of Fame offensive tackles, 36 years old. So I just don't know how many more bites at the apple they're going to get, especially, by the way, the NFC, as bad as it was, it's kind of young and on the come up, right? Detroit, all those guys are like, 22, 23 years old, Laporta, Jamison Williams, Jameer Gibbs, et cetera. They'll be back. Green Bay played well at the end of the season. The Dallas Cowboys have plenty of talent if they can ever figure out the coaching. Philadelphia has plenty of talent. Coaching staff obviously got to improve this off. So I just don't know how many more runs the Kansas, uh, the San Francisco 49ers have, especially with how the NFC is, is rolling. But here's the story at the end of the day. Does it really matter? Because even if you're awesome, you still got to go through uh, Kansas City to get that Lombardi trophy 
And I just don't think, listen, I'm not going to, we've done, and I think everybody's doing the whole like, Kansas City, it's their league, it's their era. Like, we get that. Everybody knows that. But I do kind of have two quick thoughts on Kansas City winning yet another Super Bowl. The first one, I said this after the after the AFC and NFC Championship games. Stop saying that Patrick Mahomes, there is no rival to him. There is no rival to these Chiefs. This is their league until further notice. And this is Patrick Mahomes' league until further notice. And I mentioned this um, after the AFC Championship game. I said, you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Okay, And I know it's not an apples-to-apples comparison because Jordan went 6-0 and in the finals. And obviously Mahomes lost a Super Bowl to Brady, lost an AFC Championship game to Brady, lost an AFC Championship game to Joe Burrow. Yes, I'm thinking of you Bengals fans today. So I know it's not apples to apples. But at the same time, this is why he reminds me of Jordan, okay? Because if you watched The Last Dance, okay, so I I, I think I said this, but uh, I watched The Last Dance when it aired. And then probably about a year ago, I rewatched it with my wife. We kind of, you know, she hadn't seen it live. And, you know, she's a child of the 90s like me and grew up on Jordan. So we watched it together. And when I rewatched it the second time, something stood out. It was that every player of Michael Jordan's era thought he was going to be the guy that ended the dynasty, ended the run, and in his heart, truly believed it. Reggie Miller truly believed. No, no, no. Indiana were the ones ending this thing. Um, Patrick Ewing in the Knicks, Stockton and Malone, Gary Payton. Remember Gary Payton? The glove. I had no problem with the glove. You remember that that quote from Michael Jordan? Um, who else? Charles Barkley with the Suns. Every single one thought we were going to be the team to end the dynasty, and none of them did. And that's the vibe I get from Mahomes. Is that with Mahomes, it's like people keep saying, Oh, you know, are the Bills? Is this finally the Bills year? Is it finally Lamar's year? Is it finally Kansas City's year? What about the Philadelphia Eagles? And every single one, they just figure out a way they get it done. Beyond that, and this is the important part, I this was the year to do it. First off, credit to Andy Reid. And I mentioned this on Friday's show. I said, look, we talk about this being, this past year, the best uh, coaching job of the Nick Saban era. Basically, in, in college football, the argument was, Nick Saban completely changed his team on the fly about two, three weeks into the season. Well, Andy Reid changed his team about 16 weeks into the season. We've talked about it before. They lost on Christmas Day to the the Las Vegas Raiders. You know they were nine and six after that game. Nine and six. There, There was a scenario where they didn't even win the division. We knew they were going on the road in the playoffs. And credit to Andy Reid. We talked about it on Friday. But this is a guy. What did he do? He figured out we are not an explosive offense. We're not going to throw the ball 30 times, 40 times. We don't have Tyree kill over the top. We're not putting up 40 points. We have to win up with our defense. We have to win with the run game. We have to win with ball control and possession. And we have to win by not turning the ball over. And until the Super Bowl, Mahomes didn't have a single turnover in these playoffs. And so Mahomes is this era's Jordan. This was Andy Reid's best coaching job. Reid is coming back. Mahomes is coming back. And I'm just here, obviously Mahomes coming back. Travis Kelsey is coming back. And what I'm here to just say is this is the Chiefs' era until further notice. This is, in my opinion, Jordan's Bulls, Shaq and Kobe, Jeter's Yankees. Yes, there are going to be years where they get knocked off, but until they do, they should be considered the favorite every single year. And on top of that, not only should they be considered the favorite every single year, 
But more importantly, um, you know, they, they they are just the team that even if they are to get knocked off, they should still be the favorites. Like I saw some sports books have the San Francisco 49ers as a favorite going into next year. No, they just lost the Super Bowl. Don't sell me on the Bengals. Don't sell me on the Chargers with Justin Herbert. Don't sell me on the Eagles. Don't sell me on the Bills. I've seen all of them. None of them can beat KC when it matters. As a matter of fact, you know what else I was thinking about really quick, and we'll get out of here talk a little college hoops. What's kind of crazy to me about KC, these last two years were supposed to be the years that you got them, right? Because think about it. Mahomes signs his big deal about three years ago. His big contract, and everybody knows how NFL contracts work. Quarterback makes all the money. Quarterback makes no money on a rookie contract. You build a contender around. Then the quarterback makes all the money, and you got a scratch and claw to put together a roster around. So Mahomes signs his contract two years ago. You have to trade Tyreek Hill. You lose a couple other pieces. Obviously, on the staff, this had nothing to do with Mahomes' contract, but Eric Bieniemy leaves. And you're still winning back-to-back Super Bowls without Tyreek Hill, without Eric Bieniemy, without whatever. And so why that matters is this. These are supposed to be the years that you caught Kansas City. Now, guess what? Joe Burrow, he's going to start making money. So the Cincinnati Bengals aren't going to be as strong as they've been going forward. If you believe that Justin Herbert will ever be a real threat, well, guess what? His contract kicks in. Well, now they're going to have to scale back the, the talent elsewhere. Philadelphia Eagles, Jalen Hurts just signed his big contract. Rock Purdy's limited with a banged up team, older team. These were supposed to be the times that you got the Kansas City Chiefs. So I know that nobody has gone back to back in 20 years. They just did it. And they should be, in my opinion, the overwhelming favorite to go for a third straight next year. Listen, we'll do our picks in in, in September. Last two years, I've tried to talk myself out of KC. Two years ago, it was the Tyreek Hill. This year, it was. it's really hard to go back to back. Next year, it's never been done back to back to back. Three straight championships in the NFL. I'm just not doubting this team. Congrats to the Kansas City Chiefs, your Super Bowl champs. All right, this is what we're going to do. Take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk a little college hoops. So on Saturday, Gonzaga goes to Rupp Arena, beats Kentucky. Third straight loss for Kentucky uh, in basketball, obviously. And so on Saturday, I did a bonus show, a bonus segment talking about that. And I wanted to kind of do it on Saturday just to kind of get my thoughts out before uh, the Super Bowl, because obviously today everybody would want to talk Super Bowl. But now I do want to look ahead for Kentucky. What is next for Kentucky? Can they bounce back? But more important, John Calipari, it is trending so hard in the wrong direction. And my question is, who could be the next coach at Kentucky if it continues to go sideways with John Calipari? We'll take a quick break. Context matters. We'll discuss it all on Calipari. Quick break. Word from our partners. Be right back. All right, everybody. I'm back. Going to be back. Going to be back. Uh, do want to switch gears. Do want to talk a little bit of college hoops. Now, if you listen to the Aaron Torres pod, if you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or if you're subscribed on YouTube, you know that on Saturday, we did a little bit of a bonus full episode of the Aaron Torres pod, but it wasn't really a bonus episode. It was a quick, probably about 15 minute reaction to Gonzaga beating Kentucky at Rupp Arena. Credit to Gonzaga, got a must-win game. They, 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 they did get the victory at Rupp Arena, but obviously a big part of it is that it is another milestone loss for Kentucky, third straight home loss for the Wildcats, first time in the history of Rupp Arena, an arena that opened in 1976. And so with it, listen, 
I'm not here to call for anybody's job, but the calls are just, it's no longer just sort of a whisper message board, angry fan thing. Like, like John Calipari is not living up to his bargain as the head coach of Kentucky. And as I was watching the reaction to Saturday, I was thinking, I do believe that Calipari is probably still a little too stubborn to actually step away after the season. But if this thing keeps going sideways, this is the first time that I think it's at least possible. Again, he's stubborn. I know the contract is insane. But if you fall flat on your face with this team, with all this NBA talent, you've retooled the coaching staff, you've retooled your recruiting approach, going back to the high school ranks, bringing in really good difference makers like Dillingham, Reed Shepard, et cetera, et cetera. And if you fall flat on your face, and if you uh, lose in the first round of the or first weekend of the NCAA tournament again, I think it's at least possible Cal does step aside. I, I just don't know how you can or why you would even want to come back to a fan base that clearly doesn't want you. And so I bring it up because what I want to do today, I kind of want to move the story forward. Rather than talking about Gonzaga, we did it on Saturday. What I want to do is talk about who could potentially be next at Kentucky. And I put out a little Twitter pseudo poll on Saturday night. And I basically said, look, if you had the choice of the next head coach at Kentucky, and let's say it really goes sideways, John Calipari decides, you know what? I've tried everything. It's not working. These people don't want me. I'm stepping aside. Who would you want as your head coach? And I want to go through some of the candidates, some of the people I think are realistic and some I don't. And before we get to them, one really quick caveat for Kentucky fans, for the inside baseball kind of college sports fans. Yes, I know that the Kentucky AD, Mitch Barnhard, frankly, probably wouldn't hire a lot of the names that I'm about to mention. Um, For people who aren't familiar with Kentucky, Mitch Barnhart's, I don't know if old school is the right way to put it, but he's kind of one of these, um, you know, uh, uh, risk averse ADs. Some guys like LSU, Scott Woodward, push all the chips in the middle. Go get Kim Mulkey. Go get Brian Kelly. I don't care if people don't like him. We're going to win big. Other guys and girls are risk averse. And Mitch Barnhart's kind of that guy. He's been hesitant to embrace NIL. He's been hesitant to do a lot of other things. And so I do think a lot of these candidates would not necessarily be realistic for Kentucky, but I want to go ahead and dive in and read some of your responses and really just react to your responses as well. So my first call was not the most popular name in that little uh, uh, Twitter stream, but the first call I would make is a guy that was actually in Rupp Arena on Saturday night, not Mark Few, but the guy on the sidelines calling the game. I'd call Jay Wright. Listen, Jay Wright, obviously we know his deal in his mid-60s at this point, early to mid-60s. And realistically, I don't think he's coming back to college basketball. But at the same time, this is a guy that retired at the peak of his powers. He retired at the peak of his powers, uh, you know, from 2016 to 2022. So his last seven seasons, you take out an NCAA tournament. So last six NCAA tournaments, three Final Fours, two national championships, And you could argue his best coaching job was actually his final season when his team was banged up and he still got them to a final four. He would be my first call. Again, I would operate an athletic department differently than Mitch Barnhart would. I would give him the Brian Kelly, Lincoln Riley, make him say no contract. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a a seven year, $70 million deal. I don't care if it's 12 million, 50 million, because one in this hypothetical, John Calipari is stepping aside. And two, you're not going to have to pay a buyout to get him out of a contract because he's not currently under one. 
So I just say, name the years, name the contract. Let's make it work because I believe he could come in and win at Kentucky. Now, will is it realistic? Frankly, I hate to say Kentucky fans, probably not. Bottom line is, one, I, I just think Jay Wright kind of knew it was his time. He was a coach that wanted to redshirt guys and develop guys and have guys in the program three, four, five years. And that might not be possible in the NIL portal era. And beyond that, he is so tied in with, with Villanova, it's hard seeing him leave for another college job. Now, could I see some sort of hypothetical scenario where he goes to the NBA? I could. Maybe he doesn't want to retire. Maybe he still wants to coach. The only other college scenario I could see is if things go real sideways at Villanova, they're probably going to miss the NCAA tournament for a second straight year. Maybe he ends up having to come back to Villanova to save the program. Don't think it would happen after this year, so in theory he'd still be available. But that'd be my number one call. I'd rally the boosters, rally the money, give him a contract where he just where he's at least got to sit down with his wife and say, honey, we got to have a conversation. See what happens. That would be my number one call. Don't think it's realistic. Hate to say it, my number two call probably isn't realistic because I don't think Mitch Barnhart has the you-know-what to make this call, and that's Chris Beard. And I understand, by the way, if you're a Kentucky fan, you say, I'm out of the Chris Beard business, I get it. But at the same time, an AD's job is not to do what is most popular or what's going to make the, the most people happy. It is to get the guy that guarantees you the best ability to win at the highest level, and at Kentucky... That's Final Fours. That's National Championships. Well, Chris Beard, I believe, is that guy. Why is that? It is because that dude wins every freaking place he goes, and he wins immediately, too. Like, that's the important part. This is no three-year, five-year, I got to develop guys. I got No, no, no. He comes in and wins big. Just at the power at the uh, Division One level. Year one, Little Rock. Second round of the tournament, upsets Purdue. Year two at Texas Tech, Elite Eight, first time in school history. Year three at Texas Tech, makes the Final Four, plays for a national championship, is a defensive stop away from leading Texas Tech to a national championship. Goes to Texas, and it's worth noting, it did not end well, but last year he had Texas at number one in the country at that school, and of course, this year at Ole Miss, he has them trending towards a tournament in year one, at what, frankly, might be the toughest job in the SEC. So I look at, at at Beard, I say he's no doubt. Like, he's a home run. He is a guy that will come in and win immediately. Now, there's two big problems with Beard. One you know about, one you probably don't. The one you might not know about, nobody knows his buyout. It's a weird thing that Ole Miss does, and they did this with Lane Kiffin, is by law in Mississippi, state employees can't sign a contract beyond, I want to say, four to five years. That was an issue when Lane Kiffin got his last extension. And so what Ole Miss did with Lane Kiffin was they did the contract through the school's foundation as opposed through the school, so he's not a school employee. I don't really get it. It's above my head. Jimmy Sexton figured it out and got Lane Kiffin some crazy amount of money. Why do I bring it up? It's because Chris Beard... Is has a contract under the same situation. Chris Beard has a contract. Nobody knows how much he makes, or I think we know how much he makes, but nobody really knows what the buyout is. Is it realistic to get him out? He might have a $25 million buyout for all we know. Might have a $2 million buyout. So that's the work that you have to do. That's why you hire a, a vetting service, a, a whatever. But then obviously the second big thing, and if you're a Kentucky fan that would just say no to this, it's that he was arrested 18 months ago. Wasn't that long ago. It was December of 2022. He was arrested 
Um, we know what the accusations were. We know what was in the police report. I talked about it on this show. Bluntly, I did not think he would ever coach major college basketball again. I was obviously dead wrong. But Ole Miss hired him. He won. And so it's worth noting the charges were dropped. And he had he is coaching right now. And so do I think Mitch Barnhart would do it? No. But do I think he is the, absolutely the right call that guarantees you winning? I sure do. It's worth noting, by the way, he's a, almost exactly the same age as John Calipari was when John Calipari took over as head coach at Kentucky. Number three on my list. Another name that was at least in the mentions that I don't know that Mitch Barnhart would call. So we're not off to a good start. We'll get to some of the guys that he might actually call. I'd call Nate Oates. Nate Oates is a monster, okay? And I don't care about how he handled Brandon Miller. I, I didn't think it was great, but let's also call a spade a spade. That Brandon Miller situation went well above him. There's a school president and an AD that could have stepped in. They didn't. And so I don't blame Nate Oates for everything. And what I see with Nate Oates' teams, I think right now, and I've said this, if I was starting a college basketball program today, right now for the next 10, 15 years, not what you do for the last 30, not how, next 10 years, Dan Hurley would be my number one call. Nate Oates would be my number two call. He is unbelievable. What he's doing in Alabama is insane. Two SEC regular season titles in his four full years there. Two SEC tournament titles in his four full years there. He's recruiting at an elite level, which I think is worth noting in the NIL portal era. He's not just, you know, it's not just all like uh, elbow grease and, and, and working hard and trying. He's recruiting McDonald's All-Americans, Brandon Miller, Jaden Bradley. He's got two super high-profile McDonald's All-Americans coming in next year. Aiden Sherrill, Darian Reed. This guy's recruiting at an insane level. But more importantly, unlike Kentucky right now, the recruiting is translating to the court. He is having success with these young teams, with these transfers. He's finding transfers that fit his system, by the way. And so he's the guy I would call. Now, there's two problems with Nate Oates. One, we do know Nate Oates buyout, and it's insane. To hire him, I think it's March 14th or earlier. You'd have to, or after March 14th of 2024, excuse me, you would have to pay him $10 million. So $10 million just to get him out of his Alabama contract. But then what? Another 8 to 10 to get him to Kentucky? Probably need Calipari money to get him to Kentucky. And so I just don't know if that's realistic. Kentucky fans, you know what your financial situation is more than I do. But I would pony up the dough. Because I think he is that good. I think he would win that big. And what I will say, I think he is happy at Alabama. And I don't think he's going to leave Alabama for a second or third tier job. But I think there are a few jobs that he would really have to sit down and consider, especially given the money. Um, Kentucky's one. He's from the Midwest, so maybe a Michigan or a Michigan State. But I'm just here to say, man, that's a call I would make. Again, given the Brandon Miller situation, don't know if Mitch Barnhart would. So let's keep the party going. First name that I do think could potentially get a call. And this is a guy that I, I, I certainly was maybe the number one in my Twitter mentions. It's friend of the Aaron Torres pod. He was just here a few weeks ago. Bruce Pearl. Well, I guess Nate Oates is friend of the Aaron Torres pod. Chris Beard, I had him on once. But Bruce Pearl is a monster. And again, he's doing unprecedented stuff at, at, at Auburn. Um, and he's doing it in this modern era, in the NIL era, and he's figuring it out. And I've seen a lot of Kentucky fans say that you want him. And a couple things specifically stand out to me with Bruce Pearl. One, he's doing it in the SEC right now, and he did it 15 years ago at Tennessee as well. 
when you can win in this league in two different places, two different eras, this is no fluke. This guy is elite at what he does. He's 63 years old. He is a little bit older. But in the portal NIL world, could he have that thing rolling pretty quick? Could he have a five, six-year run at Kentucky? I think he would. And then on top of that, he's obviously got the personality, right? And I think that's something that can't be understated in this era is that, listen, Cal, you can criticize, you can this, you can that, and it's deserved right now. But Cal's got the personality to handle Kentucky, or at least he did probably up until the last two, two and a half, three years. And so I only bring it up because, you know, if you're good enough, it doesn't matter, right? Like Nick Saban at Alabama was so good, it did not matter that, you know, he just didn't do media. He didn't really care, like wasn't going to be nice to people. He was so good, it didn't matter. But if you can have that personality where you can be out there in the community embracing the the responsibility that comes with the Kentucky job, that's a no doubt about it. And I will say, um, Bruce Pearl, maybe more than anybody else, it'd be fascinating to see him do it. I also think, look, man, it's, it's simple, right? If you can win at Tennessee, if you can win at Auburn, you can win at Kentucky. The age, uh, he's obviously got a huge salary at Auburn. But the, the AD that gave him an extension is no longer there. I think Bruce Pearl is happy, but he's probably a name that that is at least worth considering. Number one name that it feels like Kentucky fans feel like, and this has been reported, that Mitch Barnhart's number one choice. I don't know that I agree with it, but Scott Drew Bale. Listen, I like Scott Drew. Another friend of the Aaron Torres pod, by the way. Really good guy. One, I will say, I think he's got that personality that would work at Kentucky. He's got almost like an like an early era Dabo, all shucks, just happy to be here. And I think he really would embrace being the Kentucky basketball coach. And I think he's really good. I think, you know, listen, we talked about it three years ago. But what he did at Baylor, you could argue, is the single greatest rebuilding job in the history of college sports. So credit to Scott Drew. He's unbelievable. And he's mostly maintained it at an elite level. And he's done it, listen, in this NIL portal era. I guess my only real concern with Scott Drew, I just don't, like, let's just call a spade a spade, okay? He did get a little bit lucky with that national championship. And that sounds me, oh, towards it. No, no, no. Here's the thing. In 2020, they had a team that was good enough to win it. But I have been told, it's not just I've been told, guys have said it. If that 2020 season finishes under normal circumstances, there's at least two or three guys on that roster that go pro. This was in the pre-NIL era before guys were getting paid. And, you know, they probably would have made a run, maybe won a national championship. But a Jared Butler or Davion Mitchell, they're probably not coming back for another year. But remember, we had COVID. We had a weird draft process. And so all those guys said, rather than rushing it, I don't know what this draft is even going to look like. I'm just going to come back for another year of college basketball. And so they, they dominated. They were the best team. And Scott Drew, to his credit, has had other really good runs. Two Elite Eights outside of that Final Four. But even since that Final Four, second round loss last year in 2023, second round loss in 2022 as well. And really, you know, hasn't been beyond, outside of that one run, he hasn't been uh, beyond the the Sweet 16 since, uh, since 2012, which ironically is, of course, when Kentucky won their national championship. Now, the counter to that, of course, is that, you know, Listen, it's Baylor. It ain't Kentucky. So I don't think he'd be the worst choice, but he absolutely wouldn't be my first. But for whatever reason, it feels like Mitch Barnhart 
That's his guy. So we'll see on him. A couple other names before we get out of here. I saw a lot of Dan Hurley. Listen, I'm not trying to be a UConn homer guy. A couple things on Dan Hurley. One, he's like the sixth highest paid coach in college basketball right now. And so he's making like, I want to say five and a half or so. And so if you're making five and a half, you're coming off a national championship. Um, You know, you're in the Northeast. He's a Northeast guy. His dad is right down the street. His dad can get to all his games. I just think it's it'd be hard to get him out of that job right now. You win back-to-back national championships. What are you leaving for? You're, everything you have is at UConn. Not trying to be a UConn homer guy. I'm just being realistic. What does Kentucky offer that UConn does not? Not trying to be a UConn homer guy. I'm just stating a fact. Won a national championship last year. Have every resource that you could possibly need or want. Huge fan base. Crazy fan base. Travel everywhere just like Kentucky. They took over Madison Square Garden two weeks ago when they played St. John's. Took over, by the way, D.C. on Saturday. People said that people at the UConn-Georgetown game, there were more UConn fans there than Georgetown fans. So I just, I mean, he's making five and a half. I mean, what what are you going to pay him to get him out of the contract? Maybe, again, if you give him the J. Wright, double his money. But Dan Hurley, you got you to go with a buyout as well. I think what's more realistic is if you tried to call Dan Hurley, probably leverage it to try to get another contract. But, I mean, listen, Kentucky fans, I get it. I get why you want him. And if he takes the Kentucky job, it'd be great content for me. I just, I, I just can't see it. A couple other names. Listen, Billy Donovan, if that's what you want, that's fine. I mean, he's been out of college basketball, multiple national championships. I'm not going to say no, but the guy's been out of college basketball for so long. It's like, you understand that a couple things. One, uh, he is all of, let me see here. Is this right? It's only 58 years old. Looking, looking old for 58. He's got a lot of gray hair. So he's a couple years younger than Cal. I guess my concern with Billy Donovan is pretty straightforward, though. He left college basketball seven or eight years ago because he didn't like where it was, recruiting, this, that. Now he's going to come back in the NIL portal world? I just don't like, like even Jay Wright. Jay Wright was there two years ago. He might not like it, but at least he kind of had a taste of it. Billy Donovan, they there wasn't even one type transfer back then. You got a guy, you kept him for three or four years. I just don't see him coming back. Um, I'm trying to think of other names. Jerome Tang, you know, he's an interesting one. I think he is in play at Louisville as well. Um, But listen, uh, Kansas State is not playing very good basketball right now. And you sit there and wonder. I don't think he's a one-year wonder. I actually think he's awesome. But is that going to work at Kentucky with with the platform and expectations that they have there? I don't know. I think that's really it for candidates. Um, Can't really think of anybody else that immediately jumps to mind, but figured, hey, no time like the present to talk about it because that was a frustrating, frustrating loss. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears. Do want to go ahead and get to a little bit of college football. And it is crazy how quickly the news cycle moves in college football. Because on Friday, we got the news that Chip Kelly was leaving Ohio's, or leaving UCLA as the head coach to take the offensive coordinator job at Ohio State. And I had a ton of you hit me up. First of all, that feels like it was a million years ago. But I had a ton of you hit me up. Torres, what does it mean? How did it happen? This is stunning. Well, first of all, this really isn't stunning. And if you're a listener of the Aaron Torres pod, you actually knew this was coming. Because last Wednesday, we did a segment on Chip Kelly. I had been getting Chip Kelly questions. What's going on? Is he taking an, an NFL head co- or an NFL coordinator job? And what I said at the time, I said, listen, 
Bill O'Brien is trending to be the next head coach at Boston College. He just took the Ohio State coordinator's job, uh, and he will probably be the next Boston College head coach. And you can go back and listen to the segment we did on Wednesday. I said, if Bill O'Brien gets that job, I expect Chip Kelly to take the Ohio State offensive coordinator job. Got pushed back on Twitter, but I said, I got to give credit where it's due. Our Torres on Ohio State account, Dom who runs it. And by the way, we have about 13 or 14 Torres on accounts right now. Arizona, UConn, Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio State, Alabama, et cetera, Auburn. I don't run any of them. We got students. We got people uh, uh, on campus that run them. And our Ohio State guy was adamant the first time the, uh, the coordinator job opened up that Chip Kelly was a candidate. I didn't believe him then. Then Chip Kelly interviews for multiple NFL jobs. And as I said, uh, you know, when this job became, it, when it became obvious that Ohio State couldn't need an offensive coordinator, again, circle back with Dom. He said, this is happening. So credit to him, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in terms of why it happened, because it was it was stunning to the rest of the national media, not stunning to me, but stunning to the rest of the national media. A lot of people were trying to make this an indictment on UCLA, on Chip Kelly, on the state of college football. I don't really know that it's any of that. And instead, I think it's kind of this perfect storm of everything kind of happening at the same time and a perfect storm of the right person, the right coach, the right situation, the right job, et cetera, as to why this happened. First off, we talked about it last Wednesday. The the situation with Chip Kelly and UCLA had become untenable. I've heard mixed things about how seriously they considered firing him this past season. I've one source that told me it was 100% ready to be done. And some of the high-level boosters that had Chip's back kind of stepped in the way and said, we ain't giving you a single dollar more if you make this move. I had another high-level source that say it was never that serious, especially after UCLA beat USC. And if you remember, they destroyed USC. So I don't know how serious it was, how far it got down the line. But at the same time, what I do know is that that fan base had given up. They just didn't believe he was the guy. They didn't believe in this era he was the right guy to take them to the next level, that the program had plateaued two seasons ago when they went 9-3 and three during the regular season. And they didn't really want him back this year, and they weren't going to support him next year. So Chip Kelly knew his fans had turned on him. That's one. Two, I will defend the fans on this. I do think in the new modern era of college football, whether you like where we are or not, Chip Kelly is about the worst coach that you could possibly have in this era. He's just not, it's not who he is to be that guy in this era. In this era, it's really about two things. It's about recruiting and re-recruiting your roster and frankly, kissing the butts of 17, 18, 19-year-olds. That's clearly not who Chip Kelly is. He just wants to be in a dark room, watch film, draw plays, whatever. So he's not the perfect guy. By the way, the other part of the job is raising money, talking to boosters, collectives. This is what we got to do. This is the money that we need. That's just never who he was going to be. So, you know, un untenable situation with his fans. He's not really the right guy for this era. I would add to he's one of the few people that could take both a demotion and a pay cut to take another job. And it's not skin off his back. Like I was thinking about it. This guy has two separate NFL buyouts, Philadelphia Eagles, San Francisco 49ers. And that doesn't even include um, his time, obviously, as the Oregon Ducks head coach, you know, a decade ago. On top of that, signed a $25 million contract with UCLA. So you're talking realistically, this guy probably has 30, 35, 40, 50 million dollars in the bank. No kids, uh, you know, four or five buyouts. And so 
He's the rare guy that could kind of give the double bird to a school. Say, you don't want me? Fine, I'm out. And Ohio State is also the perfect landing spot. He's best friends with Ryan Day. He couldn't get that NFL coordinator job, but he got a three-year deal. Uh, He's not going to have to recruit as much. It's frankly probably not going to be that big of a pay cut. If he was making five and a half, six million, probably make two, two, five at Ohio State. Now that's a huge pay cut for the rest of us, 33%. But when you have 40 million in the bank and no kids, you don't got to worry about money. So that was why it happened. It was a perfect storm. Now the questions become, what does it mean for Ohio State? What does it mean for UCLA? For Ohio State, listen, I'm not the scheme guy. I say it all the time. I do think it's going to be pretty cool, though, because the the one thing about Chip Kelly, first of all, him and Ryan Day are best friends. I think I just mentioned it. The story goes they were actually golfing together the day that it was announced that UCLA and USC were leaving the Pac-12 for the Big Ten. So they're best friends. They're going to be collaborative. But the one thing about Chip Kelly, he doesn't have to worry about boosters, media, uh, recruiting, re-recruiting. And he can just draw up plays. He's he's probably still pretty good. And remember, that is a run-based offense that he runs. Quinshawn Judkins, transfer from uh, from Ole Miss. Travion Henderson, the wide receiver room, will be the best that he's had since he was in the NFL. So he is going to have more tools at his disposal than he's ever had. He's going to be working with Ryan Day. It's still going to be Ryan Day's offense, so they'll be able to work together. And from the Ohio State perspective, I think it's basically a no-doubt home run. Now, I would also add, It's go time for Ryan Day. Your organization, your program, your university, whatever you want to call it, they spent millions of dollars this offseason to get you every single thing that you needed to make sure that what happened last year, third straight loss to Michigan, loss in the Cotton Bowl to Missouri, to make sure that that never happened again. Millions of dollars, I would assume, in NIL funding to retain about five, six key players that could have gone pro but decided to come back plus Will Howard, plus Quinshot Judkins, plus a top three recruiting class. Again, nobody knows for sure except for those people that run that collective. But my guess is you can't put, first of all, Ryan Day put out the number himself. He told boosters a year ago, $13 million is what it costs to put together a championship caliber roster. I'm guessing between all the high profile transfers and the recruiting class, it's probably even more than $13 million, And that's before you brought in a super high profile, highly paid offensive coordinator. So I do think there is a little pressure on Ryan Day. And I do think um, it's go time. You absolutely, couple things. You have to beat Michigan. You have to at least play for a Big Ten championship. I don't think it's a prerequisite in the 12-team playoff era. If you don't win the Big Ten, I don't think it's the end of the world. But you got to beat Michigan, who, oh, by the way, is hemorrhaging coaches right now. I don't want to say all of them, because they just got Wink Martindale as their defensive coordinator. But a ton of their coaches are off to the NFL. I think it's four or five at this point. Got to beat Michigan. Got to play for a Big Ten championship. You got to get to the college football playoff, and bluntly, you got to make a run. Next year is a 12-team playoff. I don't know what that bar is. I don't know what that threshold is where Ohio State fans say, you know, what what else did you want? I think you got to get into at least that final four. You at least got to get into the conversation with Oregon, with Georgia, with Texas, with maybe Bama, depending on how things go in year one with Kalen DeBoer. Because, and I've said this many times about the 12-team college football playoff. There are schools that are going to be happy to get there. 
a Missouri will be happy to get there, a Kentucky, a Tennessee, probably the first time or two, a Penn State, a Wisconsin, those kinds of schools. But there are teams that the assumption is going to be that you get there, and the question becomes what happens when you do get there. Ohio State's one of those schools. So Ryan Day has to win and has to win big. Maybe the more interesting thing at this point, and by the way, I should mention, I am recording this segment before the Super Bowl, uh, so you may have a higher before uh, before this goes official, before you listen to this segment. But I only say that to say, UCLA has some very interesting times ahead trying to figure out who their next head coach is going to be. And listen, we even talked about this last week. I don't know who the call is to. Um, Jonathan Smith, who's now the Michigan State head coach, wanted this job. Would have taken this job if you moved off of Chip Kelly. Um, Jed Fish would have taken this job if you had moved off of Chip Kelly earlier. So the fact that you didn't, now those guys are unavailable, I don't know what UCLA does. Now, I will say this for UCLA real quick, and then we'll get back to candidates. One thing that I have heard, oh, it's a terrible job in the modern era, this, that, the other thing. I don't think it's a great job. I don't think it's Ohio State. I don't think it's Oregon. I don't even think it's USC in that conference. I don't think it's Nebraska. I don't think it's Penn State. I also don't think it's quite as bad as people make it out to be. Because again, Chip Kelly was not the right person to fill the Rose Bowl, to get people excited, to sell tickets. He was not in the community. So I do think with the right coach, the right person, there is a lot of money in LA and a lot of NIL money to be had. You just have to get the right person to do it. Now the question becomes, and maybe that's another segment if this this job carries on and if it isn't filled, but the question becomes who takes it? PJ Fleck apparently has turned it down. Jed Fish, you know, there's rumors that he actually interviewed even though his buyout is basically, it makes him unavailable. I don't know where UCLA goes. And that's the interesting thing. And listen, I'll say this. Martin Jarman, the AD, young guy, really smart guy. Had a few brief interactions with him. I like him. But he has to have a list of names in his um, in his in in his top drawer of this is who I'm going after if Chip Kelly leaves. And he needs to have it ready because everybody knew Chip Kelly was looking for other jobs. If it wasn't going to be the NFL, it was going to be maybe somewhere in college. Now, it, it was a unique circumstance. But if I knew that Bill O'Brien was interviewing for the if I knew Bill O'Brien was interviewing for the um, for the uh, Boston College job, and I knew that Chip would take the Ohio State offensive coordinator job, then then the AD and the administration has to know as well. So we'll see what happens. I don't think the job is quite as bad as people say because there is a lot of money in the city. There is money. It's a great recruiting base. You just got to do it. By the way, you know who I would call? And it's not going to happen, but I would. i call Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll wants to coach, knows LA, knows the recruiting scene, and oh, by the way, he was better in the NIL. He, he was running an NIL program before NIL existed. Potentially, I don't know if it's possible, maybe bring back your uh, bring back Coach O as your director of player personnel. They work together hand-in-hand hand forever. So I just, you know, I, I don't know what else there is to say. Um, I do think that this isn't the worst job. I almost wonder... Now, I don't think the AD would survive to 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 the next opportunity, but I wonder if you give someone a really short-term deal and if it doesn't work out, you fire them in a year or two and basically reset and, and try to figure out who the next guy would be from there. Almost like what Mississippi State did this year. Remember late last year, Mike Leach passed away tragically. 
They give that 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 defensive coordinator like a three-year deal. Doesn't work out. They fire him after one year. They get the guy that they want. I wonder if you give a guy like a four-year deal worth $16 million or something, a guy that wouldn't get a head coaching opportunity otherwise. And if it doesn't work out after a year or two, you, you, you can him. We'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, wild, wild, wild story. Don't know what else there is to say. Really quickly, two other quick college football stories. One, Bill O'Brien takes the Boston College job. Listen, I'm not going to spend much time talking Boston College here. I said it when Jeff Halfley left. I think it's the worst job in Power 5 football. UCLA, there is money to be had. UCLA, there is a good recruiting base. Boston College, terrible recruiting base, terrible conference, no money, disinterest. Nobody cares about Boston College sports in Boston. I grew up in Connecticut. I can tell you for a fact. Nobody cares about Boston College sports. But Bill O'Brien, NFL guy, I thought they kind of did about as well as they possibly could have given those circumstances. I don't know if he's the kind of guy to go in the community and raise money. But if anyone can raise money, I would think a guy with Patriots ties would. A little bit on a serious note, I'm also told um, that his son, uh, you can Google it, but has a, a little bit of a serious medical condition. His son's doctors are are in Boston. And so because of it, you know, I think, you know, it made sense for him to take that job. And so obviously with, with his son and everything, I wish him the best of luck, but that is a hard, hard, hard job. The other big college football story, and I did kind of a, a breakout segment on YouTube on this on, on Saturday morning, but Ryan Grubb, uh, who was supposed to come with, with, um, with Kalen DeBoer to Alabama, decided that he ain't coming to Alabama as the offensive coordinator and instead is going to take the Seattle Seahawks head coaching or uh, uh, offensive coordinator job. Now, this was a wild story, and I did again. I did about a 10-minute segment on YouTube on Saturday. You can go ahead and check it out. But it was a wild story because you started to hear speculation like the middle of la uh, last Friday, so not this past Friday when Chip Kelly took the Ohio State job, but two Fridays ago, that Ryan Grubb could be interviewing for the Seahawks offensive coordinator job. Then it went quiet. Then there was a weird video that surfaced of him speaking at like a booster club event. But there was no official statement from the school. There was no official statement from Ryan Grubb. It was a strange thing. It was almost like watching Netflix and there's a, 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 a disappearance. Somebody gets kidnapped and then they show up on like a, a security camera, uh, you know, at a gas station 2000 miles away. You're like, is that is that that missing person? And then he never whatever. So it was like the same thing with Ryan Grubb. It was like, did I just see him say I'm your new offensive coordinator? Anyway, he takes the job Friday night. First of all, everybody freaked out because there was a report from the Seattle Times that he specifically waited to take the job uh, just so it was after the Alabama transfer portal window closed. Remember, Alabama players had 30 days to enter the portal. And uh, they, they, you know, after Saban retires, well, Friday was the last day they could do it. So he waits till Friday night, decides to leave. Listen, do I think that was probably a part of it? Maybe, maybe a little bit. Maybe DeBoer convinced him to wait a week or so. Maybe even accepted the job, signed the paperwork, whatever. But I don't even know if I believe that. If he accepted the job and was just waiting for the portal window to close, why did he come to Alabama and go to a booster meeting, do a circuit event, be seen in public? Doesn't make sense. I'd also say, I don't know how many players, if any, went to Alabama to be coached by Ryan Grubb, the offensive coordinator and and uh, uh, a quarterback's coach. I mean, it's Kalen DeBoer's offense. I don't know. It's just, I, everyone freaked out, tried to make it into a big deal. I did not see it.
All right, everybody. I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed to the show, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media. At Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. At Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. All for today's show. I'll be back on Wednesday. Feels like this is finally the week that college hoops we're really going to dive in. And I'll have plenty of reaction Wednesday. Have a good night, everybody. Talk soon.